Black Doctors Podcast, Season 6. Hello, welcome back to Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host. This episode is actually going to be hosted by Dr. James Stewart, and he's going to introduce our guest shortly. Thanks so much for tuning in. Again, we're still coming off that high of hitting 100,000 downloads for the podcast. Experienced tremendous growth over the last two years. Thank you for your help and your support. If you haven't already, visit us on Instagram at the Black Doctors Podcast. And I'm going to try and do better about posting on social media about what we're doing and providing value there with the rest just recaps and snippets from the weekly episodes, whether it's me talking about anesthesia or other advice for medical students, residents, and young attendings. I'm about two weeks into my critical care fellowship. Things are going great. And uh, so far, able to balance this podcasting along with my clinical duties. But uh, thank you for bearing with us. On that note, the audio for this episode was a little rough in the beginning. There's a little bit of feedback, and I did my best to edit that um, so it was only the first like five to seven minutes or so, and then it should get better. So please bear with us. This week, Dr. Stewart sits down with emergency medicine physician. Things you can look forward to learning in this episode is how to navigate imposter syndrome during residency. What things should you consider before pursuing a dual degree program, such as a MD, MBA, or MD or, or DO um, MTP or MPH, what should you consider before committing to a dual degree program? And how do you manage your time as a junior attending? Our guest on the show actually developed the Ask, Learn, Practice framework for dealing with difficult to pronounce names. He's written a paper on the significance of saying our names correctly, but he talks about specifically some of the impact that this has on your career as a resident physician your careers in attending and how folks can actually learn to pronounce names correctly and why it's so important. I will include a link to the show note connecting our guests and his socials, as well as an easy way to access the paper that he wrote dealing with this issue. After a quick word from our sponsors, we will jump into today's episode. This podcast is sponsored by Picmonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, Picmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Picmonic has resources for pre-med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less, but remember more. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm your host, James Stewart, and today I'm joined by Dr. Emmanuel Ojobondwa. He's currently an assistant professor of emergency medicine at UT Southwestern and has an incredible academic track record. Glad to have you join us today, my friend. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Stewart. I appreciate you. <laughs> of course, of course. So let's uh, let's just start by talking about a little bit of who you are and uh, what brought you to becoming a physician. Oh, okay, fantastic. So, um, yes, Emmanuel Bonoa. I was actually born in Lagos, Nigeria. Uh, my parents were pastors, and they taught us the importance of service. Uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, and finding whatever I do finding a way to help others doing that. 
Um, and so that was kind of the background for me. And then we immediately, um, eventually moved to the U.S. when I was 13. Um, and like every immigrant child, I got bullied. Not <laughs> <laughs> yeah. every name, African booty scratcher, this, that. <laughs> Um, but, you know, somehow you learn, you know, you learn. I think it builds a lot of character or whatnot. Yeah. Um, I went to a high school for health professions while I was here in Houston, Texas. Shout out to Bakey, um, <laughs> where I really um, got into medicine a lot more um, and then spent every summer in the hospital shadowing. And then I went to Hopkins um, on a full ride scholarship where I graduated Phi Beta Kappa with a 3.98 GPA. So close. So close. <laughs> um, but I got into every medical school I applied to, and God led me to Yale, where I did a combined MD-MBA, also on a full-ride scholarship. With my business school, um, really, my focus was more on behavioral economics and, like, nudge mm-hmm. theory. Um, I thankfully stayed there for residency, had a great four years there. Uh, towards the end, I knew I really wanted to come back home. Um, it doesn't hurt that I met a beautiful woman who was also from Houston, Texas. <laughs> yep, so yep. all of those things just told me I needed to come back home. So I'm really excited to be uh, in Dallas now. Oh, that's awesome, man. And we'll definitely dive into a few of those things some more. Uh, but first, I have to go back. I know that you're a proud Nigerian. So <laughs> how has your culture played a role in your success and the pride that you have for your work? Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, thank you. So, ah, yes. You know, I'm a Niger boy, you know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> yep. um, it, it bleeds, bleeds green, white, green. Um, <laughs> I think it's helped a lot because, you know, it's it's that focus on hard work. I feel like yeah. um, it's it's ingrained in all of us. It's not just Nigerians, just immigrants in general. And like a lot of, you know, families, it's just like, you know, you come in with this American dream. You want to do well. You know, I went to a military boarding school in Nigeria and like where... You know, there wasn't constant electricity. There was lack of resources. So that changes your perspective a lot when you come here to the U.S. where you have, like, you know, all the things available. I have constant electricity and things like that. So you're constantly working um, to make a difference as much as you can. One thing I wanted to answer, though, is, like, why I went to become a doctor. Yeah. Because, you know, growing up, um, my dad actually wanted to be a doctor. So I have the same name. My dad's Emmanuel Sr., I'm Emmanuel Jr., but if everybody, anybody calls me Jr., I'll fight them. Um, <laughs> but um, so uh, he wanted to be a doctor. However, he, um, because of the corrupt system, um, he couldn't go into medical school. Um, and I saw how that kind of limited him, even though they devoted their lives to you know, my mom, devoted their lives to like taking care of people and whatnot. Um, I could see how they can give them food. They do mission work all the time. They're pastors. Um, they give people food, shelter, all that stuff. But, you know, people with diabetes, people with high blood pressure, um, they couldn't take care of them as much as they would want to. And so I knew from the beginning that I wanted to do something. I wanted to help out more. Mm-hmm. And the way to help out more was to fulfill that dream that my dad had. So it's kind of funny. He has some of my degrees, and it's hilarious because it just says Emmanuel Ohadunra. So it's like my dad's degrees right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's all about, though, man, that legacy and continuing on that legacy. That's beautiful. So that's good. So I know you, you mentioned, you're, obviously, you're very successful from an academic standpoint, and even outside of that. 
and you said that you went to medical school at Yale. So just briefly, how was your time at Yale? And can you talk about that transition from undergrad to medical school? How was that? Like medical school at Yale, it was it was kind of, um, it was different because, you know, at Hopkins, I felt like, you know, I told you I went to military boarding school in Nigeria. I felt like it was a little bit in the military where, um, you know, you slept, you ate, you mm-hmm. played sports and you studied. That's kind of the situation. You know, I was in neuroscience, pre-med. Hopkins yep. is known for like a pre-med factory kind of. Like, you know, <laughs> you know, in terms of like, we all work hard, we're all focused. You find a strong community of people over there. It gave me all the resources needed. Um, and so, and thankfully I did really well there, you know. And so coming to Yale, Yale was a little bit different because for okay. the med school, it was like, all right, um, here are all the resources now go forth and conquer the world. Um, but there wasn't as much of a structure at that time. And for someone who was so used to structure, I struggled that first year, you know. But I began to later appreciate that method. And it's so great to have gotten to see both sides of things. Where at Yale, I was able to do things that I don't think I would have been able to do in med school at other places. For example, being a winning a grant to do a Downs Fellowship to work with the government in South Africa to do electronic medical record stuff, working with the African Research Academies for Women, where we're like increasing, decreasing that gender gap by increasing female participation in research in Africa, being on the executive committee of a bunch of African diaspora projects. So all these things I wouldn't have been able to do while also maintaining um, a heavy academic load if I were in a different place where there was a crazy amount of structure. So I really appreciated having a little bit of both, but it was a little bit difficult initially, like everything else. No, that makes sense. It's kind of like you said, that difference of having structure and then kind of being on your own with the resources. It's completely different. I'm sure we'll get to that when we talk about residency as well, but Mm -hmm. that transition is hard. Mm -hmm. And one of the most frequent questions that I get, and I'm sure you get all the time is, how to study in medical school and mm. what is your advice on maximizing your study time mm-hmm. and then how to effectively study? Because that is absolutely crucial in medical school. So what's your yeah. advice for that? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, medical school is a different beast because, you know, for many places you have monthly exams. Um, mm-hmm. Exams are really difficult. And so it's like a constant, like you're studying, studying, studying. Um I had to find ways because after a while you can get, go crazy from just studying all the time. Um, and so just finding ways to have fun while studying, you know, finding a study group of people, not a fun, like just always partying group, but like a study mm-hmm. group. Where there's a lot of people who like are like-minded, but you guys could like oh, go get lunch. And after you get lunch, you can study, get focused, do that again. Um, I also did a lot of like listen to a lot of podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, I think podcasts help because you can work out, you can run errands while listening to a podcast. So you're maximizing a lot of um, the things that you're doing. And so I think doing that and then making a plan from the beginning, you know, one of the reasons, because I have, I had a lot of students, you know, I, I still do, because after graduating with that GPA at Hopkins, mm-hmm. uh, an article published about me that went viral and different things like that. Wow. And so you know, I got a lot of people asking me questions. Oh, how'd you study? How did you do this? How did you do that? And one of the things I realized was I came in with a plan in the beginning. At Hopkins um, was, 
I wanted to find out how I studied best. And as soon as I figured that out early on, everything else became like gravy because it's like, you know, it doesn't matter what exam it is. It's just like, all right, I know exactly what I need to do. I know exactly how long it's going to take me. Some people, you know, it takes you a long time in order to learn or memorize something. Don't wait until the last minute, you know, different things like that. So I think the first step is like figuring out what is your best study style Mm -hmm. and then figuring out a plan early on so that you spend less time being anxious about exams. Wow, that's that's powerful, man. And that's something that I had to learn, too. And something that you brought up that was absolutely key was setting a plan Mm -hmm. and then not only setting a plan, but adapting if something doesn't go right. Yeah. so key is what you're saying is people like to just go through the motions, but you have to be intentional on this journey, man. So that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And you, again, very accomplished, man. You've done a lot. Like this is very impressive uh, CV, if you will. And, you know, besides examinations, we both know there's networking and there's other things to kind of you stand out in medical school. What are some of those additional things that you can recommend to people to help them stand out besides purely being focused on exams? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so first of all, don't forget your your number one priority, which is like doing well. So like this is the same advice I give people for um, medical school, for residency, for, you know, attendanthood. You know, like if you screw up on that area, then everything else just drops. And that was one of the biggest advice one of my my mentors gave me um, that's been very, very helpful. Now, speaking of the other side, I think it's always finding what is your passion and how can you use that, um, combine that with what you do. You know, like for me, you know, growing up, you know, I remember my mom you know, she wanted to go through school when she was younger in Nigeria. Um, but there were people who believed that training a woman was not really worth it. And so although she's been extremely successful as a crime journalist and she did a lot of crazy stuff when she was younger, she was limited in that ability to be able to attain the things she wanted to attain. Wow. So Joining the African Research Academies of Women and doing a lot of work related to that was so much fun for me because it it was like a personal thing for me, Mm -hmm. like trying to give back and trying to do my own part in order to like try to narrow that gender gap. You know, so like constantly finding things that are that have, you know, a, a, a personal touch to it but like ends up being a way to help others kind of makes you stand out because it no longer becomes like, oh, I'm doing this just for recognition. It becomes that, hey, I'm doing this because it is a passion of mine. And thankfully, it's also helping people out, but it's a passion. It's something I want to do. And I don't really give a crap about recognition for it, you know? Uh, So yeah, that's my advice to people is like standing out, please should not be about, you know, there's the checkbox things. Oh, go do, you know, this volunteer, go do that. Yeah. Yo, find something that's healthcare related, that is fun for you, that you're passionate about and be the baddest at it. And, you know, people will notice it. That's very true, man. That's great advice. And it's funny because we both know if you aren't passionate about it, People can tell, like yes. you, know, if you can bite it, but people can tell if you don't really like 
you know, helping the underserved. I mean, I'm just saying, you can't fake everything. So, again, you know, find something that you're passionate about, yeah. and then everything will kind of follow after that. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I want to ask you about medical school is, uh-huh. clearly you were passionate about business. Uh, you mm-hmm. said you graduated from Yale with an MD, MBA, which is mm-hmm. incredible. Mm-hmm. And people go back and forth about getting accessory degrees or additional mm-hmm. MBA. What was your motivation in getting an MBA and how do you see it helping you in the future or how has it already helped you? Mm. Oh, yeah, that's I could talk for hours about this, but I'll give like the short version, <laughs> the spark notes version. So I knew that I wanted to be, especially with the work my parents did growing up, you know, doing a lot of mission work. I, I knew from the beginning that anytime I was doing something, I wanted something that was sustainable. Okay. Um, I see that you might go, you distribute like, you know, food for like five seconds or whatever. What happens, you know, a month later? What happens two months later? Um, you know, and so how do you, you know, there's a quote my parents used to tell us when we were younger, you know, um, you know, it's like, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. Man, woman, you know, it doesn't have to, you know, let's, let's make sure we're like, um, <laughs> gender neutral and everything. Um, but it, it was very, very important for that. So growing up in that kind of environment, I always thought about sustainability and whatever work I wanted to do. Mm. And I was blessed, you know, to apply to a bunch of schools that had business schools. And at the end of the day, you know, Yale, um, and that was one of the reasons I, w- I came to Yale was, you know, and their mission is educating people for business and society. And therefore, there's that focus on the society aspect where how can you make money while also doing good? Now, going back to your question about um, the focus on why people would do an accessory degree, it's mm-hmm. kind of dependent on your needs. I know I wanted, um, and I'm still very interested in administration. I'm still very interested in how the system can work for all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, creating equitable care for even people that look like me. And mm-hmm. so doing work related to that was always a passion for me. But the question is, how can you make sure that you create a more, uh, a, a, a better argument for it? And one of the things that you need to be able to do is to show that something is financially viable. You can't just say, oh, do this because it's good. Yeah, you know, yes, that's cool. But there's people who don't care about that. But when something hits, you know, they talk about money talks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when someone, people who are interested in the combined degree go for various things, one is administration. One is they want to start their own company. For me, I was always interested in administration. I was interested in creating an organization that um, renders equitable care to all. And I think Yale was the best place for me to learn. That's beautiful, man. And what you said is so, so true, Is especially when you're trying to make change at a hospital level. And even on a level bigger than that, if you can't show that it's saving somebody money, <laughs> somewhere it's hard to get things implemented yeah. it's true they'll say yeah this is great but um is it going to cost me more mm-hmm. you know or you know where's the money actually going so that's great man Thank you. i want to shift into something that i really want to spend a lot of time on and that's residency okay um which again is going to be the main focus and especially with the soon to be matched med students coming up the ranks soon i think it's very important to kind of have these discussions as we both know residency is hard It's definitely an adjustment and it's definitely a journey. So 
But let's back up and talk about what made you choose emergency medicine because you know surgery's the best. <laughs> and what are the different options for fellowships and careers, man? It's great. Oh man, I'm messing with it. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. You know, um, I think uh, how how I decided emergency medicine. So I didn't even think about emergency medicine until um, I got into medical school. Before that, I thought I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Um, I went to Yale and Hopkins because, you know, I, you know, I had read a lot about Ben Carson and I wanted to be like him. And, and then I went, I got to Yale and I was doing one of my rotations and I walked into the ER and I felt like even in the chaos, I felt a sense of calm. That's beautiful. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was just a lot of fun just being in that environment. And so I started looking, okay, what is this? What is this ER thing? Um, and then you start reading the stereotypes. Oh, it's people who have ADHD. I'm like, I don't have ADHD. And then I started reading a lot. And I was like, there's, first of all, ADHD, there's a lot of benefits <laughs> to people who have ADHD in terms of their um, ability to multitask and do a lot of things. And they're in every specialty. They're just not in the ED. And secondly, there's a lot of people who, are, um, I just started looking at different people who I felt like I respected so much who were excelling in the ED. You know, you talk about mm-hmm. Gail D'Onofrio, who's like, who's the former chair of my department. You talk about Ali Raja, who's at Harvard, who I've been reading about for so long. You know, you see all these people who are like excelling. And because the ED is like emergency medicine is a relatively new field, there was so much that people didn't know. So I immediately knew that, okay, there was no more reservations. I already feel calm and excited in this place. And I see so many people who I can see who would be mentors who are doing so much outside of medicine and being excellent at what they did. And um, why not? So that's how I decided on emergency medicine. Now, your second question is the different options for fellowships. I really yeah. liked that. First of all, the, e- the ED, uh, we interact with almost every specialty. Like, it's, it's really hard to not interact. I feel like I've never talked to a pathologist. Um, that's what I, mean. I feel like that's the only specialty y'all actually don't talk to. But I know very well, yeah, y'all talk to, y'all talk to, exactly to everyone. And, and for someone who's very interested in the administrative aspect of things, it's very yeah. important to have that bird's eye view of what's mm. going on um, around the hospital. What are the priorities of the surgeons? What are the priorities of the internal medicine people? What are the priorities of the hospitals? What are the priorities of all the different departments? And so um, going into EM was very exciting for me, for someone interested in administration, because it just gave gave me a bird's eye view of all the different things. There's too many options in terms of fellowships, administration, simulation, ultrasound, global health, toxicology, sports medicine, research. I'm learning about them every day, man. So critical care. So it's like <laughs> there's so much that you can do. Um, and the lifestyle is great in terms of that flexibility to be able to do a lot of things outside of medicine. So I, I, you know, I'm so happy with my decision. I really love what I do right now. I feel like I have such a great job and I'm grateful for it. And I think at the end of the day, it's just finding no specialty is perfect, first of all, but finding that specialty that gives you calm, that makes you happy and makes you the most happy and then that's, go for it. That's key. And you kind of broadly touched on it, but generally speaking, can you just tell us about the structure of EM residency as far as 
how many years? I know this, that varies depending on the program mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. what kind of rotations you guys have to do to be a competent physician. Yeah, no, definitely. I can quickly talk about it. So the there's there's two types. There's the three year and the four year. Um, you know, it's funny. I went to a four year program, but now I teach and I'm uh, assistant professor in a three year program. Um, I feel like people can argue for days about the benefits of each one. I was very happy with mine because they gave you the opportunity to be able to do a lot of work outside of the hospital while also being a resident. In the residency, you're, you know, you do a lot of months in the ED, but you do so much outside where you're in the in the medical ICU, or the cardiac ICU, and the surgical ICU. I feel like we hung out a little bit while I was in my sickly rotation. Um, you know, so you learn a lot about critical care because all these patients come in. You do a lot of pediatrics because, you know, as you go into the community EDs, um, there's a lot of peds cases that come in. And guess what? It's you. Um, you know, you do a lot of gynecology stuff, you know, uh, and patients that come in. And so it's like learning. It's like the breath, learning all the different aspects of medicine and being able to take care of the first two hours of any situation that comes in to the hospital. That's awesome, man. You guys definitely rotate a lot on many different (laughs) programs. But it's needed, though. You guys have that broad knowledge to be able to handle anything, especially when you don't have the resources of an institution that, like Yale, for example. I think this is, next topic will probably be very interesting is uh, how was intern year? And again, we talked about that transition from med school, yeah. from undergrad to med school, but how was that transition from medical school to intern year? And how did you manage that learning curve with rotation mm-hmm. and service exams and all of that? Because it's difficult. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's I feel like any transition is very difficult. Um, intern year was, um, was a little bit easier for me and harder Hey there, I hope you're enjoying listening to the show. I want to take a minute to talk about TrueLearn and thank them for sponsoring the Black Doctors Podcast. TrueLearn is a medical exam preparation company that helps you outperform on your boards. If you are a medical student or resident physician, you should definitely check out their products. If you sign up, please use the code BDPODCAST and you'll get a discount. They have resources for both DO students as well as MD students and even physician assistants. When it comes to residency licensure, they offer question banks for over eight different specialties. TrueLearn gives analytics that give you insight into your study habits, your question responses, and tracks you along with your peers. Students and residents average 20% improvements after completing a TrueLearn smart bank. Check them out at truelearn.com. And again, remember to use the code BDPODCAST to receive your special discount. Now back to the show. Um, I think this is, next topic will probably be very interesting is uh, how was intern year? And again, we talked about that transition from med school, yeah. from undergrad to med school, but how was that transition from medical school to intern year? And how did you manage that learning curve with rotation and in-service exams and all of that? Because it's difficult. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's I feel like any transition is very difficult. Um, intern year was, um, was a little bit easier for me and harder in certain aspects. Easier because I stayed in the same place. 
right? Mm-hmm. So I didn't need to find a new apartment. I stayed in the same apartment right by the business school where I was, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't need to, and I kind of knew a lot of people in the department and whatnot. And I, so I think that was the easy part. Um, I think one of the things to I talk to residents about all the time is there's this tendency and desire to commit to a lot of different projects. You know, you come in and everything sounds very interesting. The problem is that, again, you can't forget your day job. And your day job is to be a resident, an intern, a resident, to be a good resident. Um, and I feel like that was something I struggled with initially because I talked about how I was so involved in a lot of things during med school. And as, especially when I took some time off in business school, I was doing a lot of different things, too. And so coming to residency was so tough, like mm-hmm. giving up a lot of these positions and things like that. And I struggled with that initially. But as soon as I, you know, I got that back in my head, hey, this is your day job. You got to focus on it and do well. Then it became a lot easier. So I talked to every like a lot of students now, especially your intern year, like really, really step back. And focus on that day job, understanding and doing very well on that. And then after that, you can start adding something, other things. One of my new passion projects, though, is like trying to make sure people are prepared as well for the in-training exam. Uh, I I was fortunate to have been the number one scorer in my residency. That came after like doing poorly the year before. Um, and so I feel like I see things from both sides of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it is, again, coming in with a plan. Same thing that happened in med school, same thing that came in undergrad. Once you come in with a plan and I can talk, I do like I do a small lecture uh, with residents and stuff. But like, you know, we can if people are interested, I can talk to them offline about it. But, you know, it's coming up with a plan, stopping, like taking a few resources and really just going with those resources and like making sure you excel at that day job aspect of things. And then you can look at all the other stuff that and that comes in. No, that's that's super helpful advice, man. And I think people will definitely take you up on that offer. But it's, it's interesting you say focus on your day job. And I think we all think coming from medical school into residency that we won't fall victim to that, that we'll, oh, yeah, of course. How could you not focus on your day job? But it's really easy. I've even been victim of that because time mm-hmm. flies. For certain residencies like EM, internal mm-hmm. medicine, as soon as you get there, before you know it, you'll be applying to fellowships. And you're like, yeah. oh, how many papers I got to do? What organizations? Mm-hmm. Before mm-hmm. you know it, you're involved in all these things and taking away your focus. So always resetting like that is something that I'm still constantly learning and something mm-hmm. that I'm glad you said, man, that is so, so, so crucial. Yeah, and it's it's like a big, it's also a thing I'm struggling with right now, you know, as a new attendant. Um, and I know we'll talk about it some later, but like, it's just, it's again, that same thing where there's that desire to like, you know, do so many things. Exactly. And to like, learn to say no. <laughs> exactly. So this next question is one that definitely hits home for a lot of people too. And, you know, I've seen you in action, man, in the ED. And I, I don't say this lightly, like you were incredible, you know, in your senior resident year when I saw you, that's when I came in the residency, you commanded the room, you knew what you were doing, you knew your knowledge, you were, yeah, great knowledge, you were great. Thank you. Saying all of that, how do you combat imposter syndrome, especially as a black man in medicine, where there are very few of us in that field? Even when you move to, you know, become an attending, there's still not that many of us. So mm-hmm. how do you 
Well, if you figured that out, um, send that article to me, please. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I wish I did, man. (laughs) No, but I I think, you know, it's something that we, um, I don't think it's something that we can completely go away from. Um, Nevertheless, I think there's various ways that I have tried in order to um, at least stay sane, you know, because you hit, you get microaggressions like left and right, you know. Um, but one of the things I do is like surround myself with my village, you know, quote unquote. Um, yeah. And that's like, you know, excuse me, having, you know, my parents. My parents have been such a huge support system. My siblings, my girlfriend, my, you know, just my church family. These are people who gas you up, you know. These are people who are there when you have very difficult days. Because Lord knows I had so many difficult days during residency. You know, times I cried. I remember one time I called my brother. And, you know, you always say men don't cry. I called my brother and I was just just falling. And (laughs) and he just just listened to me the whole time because I was just like, oh, my gosh, what just happened? Um, So surrounding yourself with your village. The other thing is from like, you know, I studied neuroscience and psychology and my psych classes were so much fun in undergrad. But one of the areas um, I really love is positive psychology and, you know, thinking about the one things I try to do almost every day is to think about four things that I'm happy about when I wake up. Oh, that's good, man. Yeah. Um, You know, and it's become even more important during the pandemic. Um, you know, seeing and being scared for your life, especially being in the ED and being the first ones, you know, um, but just just trying to maintain perspective about what am I thankful for? And it just makes me not think negatively all the time. Secondly, is just focusing on your mental health um, mm. as much as possible, you know, doing things that you love. So, you know, imposter syndrome is tough, um, but, you know, focusing your mental health. And third is like, being the best that you can be, you know, mm-hmm. like times we still question ourselves. I'm like, yo, I have done well for so much of my life. But when things happen, you know, you still question yourself. But having those reminders, I used to have a happy wall um, in yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. where I would get notes. I got notes from people, whatever it is, and I would post it on my wall. And sometimes when I start feeling like, oh, I am not good enough, I just walk up. Look at that wall. Look at the words that people say and say, hmm, that's me. <laughs> exactly. And, and it, it really helps. And then the, the fourth part is just advocacy, you know, and advocacy comes with mentorship. I'll give a quick example. You know, I, you know, I, I was at one point last year, I was really focused on like getting people to register to vote mm-hmm. um, and how we can combine that with a health and literacy thing. You know, I went all the way, I, you know, I, you know, we galvanized a group of attendants, galvanized a group of people, and it went all the way to the president of the hospital system in order to be able to get stuff done. Wow. But it started from a small thing, just thinking about it and then taking mentors. So I had, thank God, I talk about Dr. D'Onofrio all the time, but she's, you know, chair of our department. She jumped in on this. And like was just just having these mentors at Dr. Christine Gurria, who was also very invo- involved in these things. And like you just get all these people who are like way above you, super smart, super hardworking, who are joining in the cause. And that kind of helps you combat things that you feel are are not good, you know. 
And so I think that kind of advocacy makes you happy, makes you feel like you've accomplished something, and it helps, again, to combat imposter syndrome. But at the end of the day, I'm just throwing a bunch of different things to, like... <laughs> no, like, oh, man. Oh. no, yeah, you have to have, you know, like you said, strategies. And it, it, it happens over time to kind of help combat imposter syndrome. Everybody will experience it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something I like you said is that happy wall, man. I started doing something similar, I think, in my second year. I started... Just keeping a journal in my phone of all the positive emails and things that I've got. And when you look back over that over the year, you're like, wow, like I've actually done a lot. So I actually like mm-hmm. what you said. Mm-hmm. Um, the next question is, is what is the difference in responsibility between a senior resident and a junior resident? And how has that transition for you uh, mm-hmm. from being a junior resident to a senior resident? Oh, yeah. Um, I it's, it's very interesting. And I'm really glad for, and that was part of being a fourth year resident, um, was that our focus was now how do you supervise people? Um, and part of it is just having a lot of patience um, for the learning process. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously you know a lot of the answers by this point, but you got to allow the junior resident to be able to think through the progressions. Yes. And part of it is like really putting yourself in their position and being patient about that. So I think that transition was a little bit easier because it was already a part of our program where as fourth years, who were always working with the second year in a pretending role, which is like you're pretending like the attendant, the attendant is there um, just to make sure you don't do anything stupid. But (laughs) (laughs) But for the most part, you know, the junior resident presents to you and you just get to see how the thought process develops. You get to see how people go from a first year intern level to like second years. You see the third years already running everything. So it's a it's a beautiful delineation of the roles. And I think part of it is just being very patient, learning your teaching style. So like my, for me, the easiest way for me to learn was when people ask me questions because it made me not make made me feel like they weren't assuming I didn't know um, the stuff, and so. But I found that when I was doing that with you know, aka pimping, some junior residents they didn't like it, and so I had to learn what type of residents like stuff like that and what type don't. Ask questions a lot and try to figure out what is the best way for them to learn. So there's people like me who were like very excited about like someone asking me questions, yes, go forth, ask a lot of questions. Otherwise, adjust to the way, and all of that comes from a lot of communication. Man, that's actually good. I've never thought about that either. And I don't think a lot of physicians do that is figuring out what your junior residents learning style is, like not just yours, but like what is theirs. Mm -hmm. Um, And then tailoring your your feedback and kind of your lessons of the day towards that. I think that's actually something that needs to be implemented everywhere because I've, I don't, we don't do that and I haven't done it before either. So that's actually, that's actually quite brilliant. So currently, again, you're an assistant professor at UT Southwestern. Mm-hmm. So one, what made you choose UC Southwestern is a phenomenal institution. And we, the theme here today is transitions, but mm-hmm. how has your transition been from residency to an attending? And you kind of touched on that a little bit, but how has it been for you so far? Oh man, it's been, it's been fantastic. So why did I choose UT Southwestern? Uh, well, I knew I wanted to come back to Texas. So the question was where. I kind of knew I wanted to be in academia. 
Um, and, you know, there aren't that many options between Houston and Dallas. So I applied to all of those places. Um, I think the place, the the things that stood out for me at UT Southwestern was like, you know, the 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 culture all the way that stems from the chair, the chair of the department, Dr. Dirks. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very calm, very easy going. Like she's just, she's so brilliant, but like very easy going where it's like, oh my gosh, you feel, you still feel intimate, intimidated because of how brilliant she is. But at the same time, you feel comfortable talking to her um, and, and learning from her. And just the way that this, the, it goes down from the top where you just feel as a black man coming into an organization where there aren't as many people that look like you, the first thing you got to know is if the people are for you or not. Mm-hmm. And I think it was very important that they just showed immediately that they were, they were, you know, for me, they were for, they were for diversity. They were for inclusion and they weren't just saying it just to say it. They were creating a culture that cultivated that. And so all of those together just made me know that it was, it was, it was the place to be. Um, and even though it's a little bit farther from Houston, which is where my family is, I, I think being in a in a place with such a standout culture like this kind of um, makes makes it worth it. <laughs> no, that that's so true, man. Like you said, identifying you know those people who are for you, so making sure your enemies aren't against you, man. So. <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking about the Tinder swindler right now? <laughs> Make sure your enemies aren't against you. You gotta identify them, man. You gotta do it. That's funny. That's high yield, man. You no, know, UT Southwestern, man, is a phenomenal institution. I have a good amount of friends over there, and. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of more questions for you is one, how did you, do you have any advice for contract negotiation and just a general job search? I know that comes up a lot um, regarding knowing your worth and just making mm-hmm. sure you get the best contract possible uh, when you leave residency. So what advice do you have for me? Oh, yeah. Um, so for the job search, it's, you know, asking all, so one of the things they did for us was, you know, we had a um, a database of people who had been who had any job in Texas. Oh, nice. You know, like me, I was interested in Texas, so like they would t- they told me the different people, and then I just started asking a bunch of my attendants. So like, you know, one of my attendants, Dr. Boatwright Dowen, had yeah. he has too many friends, right? Yeah, so you know, <laughs> Dowen sends me, all right, go meet this person, go talk to this person, and there's nothing like having someone introduce you. Uh, to someone else in the organization and then going and talking to them and then they know their people and then they pass it on. So I talked to a lot of people, especially trying to make a decision among all the different institutions here. And I, I, I feel like if you aren't tired of talking, then you haven't talked enough and therefore like send emails. Don't be scared. I remember having to send, you know, multiple emails to people, like people are busy, they get 100 emails per day, don't take anything personally that they didn't respond to you, yeah. you know, just like, you know, if you know that this is the place you want to be, um, you know, send emails, ask for introduction, because when someone with a big name introduces you to someone else, they tend to listen. Um, so that was kind of part of the the job search. The initial part was like asking a lot of questions and trying to get the lay of the land. The second step is then, while figuring out what the department comprises of and what their needs are. 
you know, kind of stuff. Because if you're going into a place, if you're an ultrasound trained person and you're going to a place where there's like 50,000 different ultrasound trained people, then there might be, um, you know, depends, but there might be a little bit of difficulty in terms of like creating your own area and like growing in that area. And so like trying to figure out what the structure of the you know, uh, the place is. I remember having so many conversations um, with with people who are working at ET Southwest. And I even had some of them who would just message me just saying, offering advice and offering like themselves as like resources. Yeah. And that kind of just drew me towards the organization because I, I realized that everybody was really committed mm-hmm. to and showing you what the university was um, all about. So yeah, asking a lot of questions. In terms of the contract negotiation, it's a little bit tough for, for academia because a lot of, like, we all kind of make the same amount. Aside, you know, like, obviously, an assistant professor makes less than an associate and a full-time professor. And so that contract negotiation is a little bit, like, set in stone. Um, but thinking about other things that can that can come into play, like maybe CME money for trips to, um, to speak at conferences and things like that, especially for us, you know, who are underrepresented, who also enjoy outreach, SNMA and all these different things will be helpful to have an organization that is in support of that. Now, for the community, contract negotiations a little bit like a more of a bigger deal. Um, and so, like, they tell you to have a lawyer review the contracts. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a lawyer review mine because it was academia and I had like my vice chair review it. And, you know, yeah. he looks at, he writes contracts for people. So, oh, uh, so, um, <laughs> it was, so once he reviewed it and said it was like standard, I was like, okay, sounds good. Um, let's keep it moving. Um, but in, um, in the community, it becomes more important to have a lawyer, have someone review it, make sure like all the things that you need are in place and um, really ask a lot of questions. My mom used to say this to me growing up. She used to say, my, in my language, I'm about to speak Igbo to you. You ready? It I'm says, ready, man. <laughs> it means a person that asks a lot of questions does not get lost. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something my mom said to us growing up all the time. And I think it's a very, very important lesson, especially as a person of color, as you go in academia, as you go through med school, to undergrad and all these things, constantly asking questions kind of helps you move in the right direction because otherwise you might not get the resources that you need in order to excel. Man, so many gems you just dropped. (laughs) Um, One thing that I kind of zeroed in on that I really like is when you're looking for these jobs, like making sure you don't go to an area that's too saturated. Like, We spend all our time trying to diversify ourselves in residency and fellowship. And what's the point if you go to a place where you won't even really be recognized? Mm -hmm. I think that's so very interesting to say that. And the last thing I really want to ask you is, it's about a piece that you wrote that was very powerful. Say our names. We are doctors too. And it was talking about name-based microaggressions. And we kind of talked about that a little bit earlier. Can you talk about your motivations for writing this and what it means to you personally? Oh, absolutely. Thank you for asking it. Thank you for reading it. So um, I wrote this piece. Uh, it, it actually stemmed from my time during residency. I remember going through um, most of residency and people didn't call me doctor. It was always, you know, whether it was in the lecture hall, in the hospital, it was Dr. Stewart and Manny. 
mm-hmm. Dr. Jones, and many. And eventually I realized that it was because people were too scared to pronounce my name and were too scared to ask. The problem was, you know, like microaggressions. So microaggressions, we all know this. It's like it's become a buzzword these days. Um, you know, anything is like these slights against people that are of a marginalized group. And this name-based microaggressions is a subtype that looks at people who have ethnically distinct names. So what these people didn't realize at that time by doing this, like literally I'd be in a simulation or I'd be in something and it was always Dr. Dis and Manny. Eventually that imposter syndrome kicks in, which is why when you ask me about imposter syndrome, like I'm like, yo, (laughs) teach me. You know, imposter syndrome kicks in because you start questioning yourself. Like the first mm-hmm. bite, like a microaggression, doesn't really work. doesn't really do anything. The, but they say ten, um, death by 10,000 cuts. By the time you get to the 20th, the 30th, then you start asking yourself if you're actually good enough. And then you start seeing it in recognition where, you know, you think about someone like me, where like patients would, um, you know, would say, oh my gosh, you're like the best doctor, you're fantastic, or this or that. But when... They do the reviews or whatever because they can't remember your name. They write the team was fantastic. Oh but man, you slighted. Wow. Was fantastic. Yeah. Um, and when it's someone else, it's like Dr. Stewart was fantastic. Unfortunately, your program leadership and all these different people use you know these things because they shout you out. They're like, "Wow, Dr. Stewart!" Every patient who talks about him says how fantastic he is. So you start seeing how. These name-based microaggressions could affect people in terms of recognition and promotion and stuff, uh, affect them in terms of imposter syndrome. I developed high blood pressure during residency. (laughs) I believe you, man. I didn't go check mine. (laughs) You know, you just have all these things affect you. So, but the most important reason why I wrote it was that I found that it wasn't just me. It wasn't a, my residency thing. It was a thing that was affecting people all around the country who mm-hmm. are doctors, but because they have, even if their names are easy, because it's ethnically distinct, people are just like, nah, we just don't call you person or we'll just call you Dr. O or something like that. That's even, that's even better. It's like, yo, at least you called me doctor. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Um, and so in it, and I, you know, suggest people read it because it's really short. It's like a page and a half. But and then I then talk about like various ways people can combat this. You know, I coined the um, the, the the mnemonic ALP, ask, learn, practice. Whenever mm-hmm. you come into an environment where you don't know how to pronounce someone's name, just ask them. Just be like, yeah, hey, just how do you pronounce it? And then learn it. And like literally write it down and then practice it. And you'd be surprised how much, you know, I, I now, you know, I work with a lot of residents and attendants and, you know, it just makes my day when they're like, yo, Dr. Ohabunwa, how you doing? It's like, mm-hmm. I'm like, yo, what's good? You know, it just, it just, it just changes a lot of the dynamic that comes in. Because uh, if you can learn how to say Schwarzenegger, you can learn how to say Tchaikovsky, you yeah. can learn Ohabunwa, it's all I'm trying to say. The other thing I do recommend, uh, recommend people do is like, there's this program called Name Coach. And um, so Name Coach is you literally just type it on, on Google and you look at the name, you can make a name badge. So I always, in all my signatures, I have, it says, this is how you pronounce my name. And when people click on it, they immediately hear how I pronounce my That's name. Awesome. And it becomes very helpful because then it takes away the ask part of the ALP. 
Um, mm-hmm. Because then they just listen to it and immediately they kind of learn it. So my goal is just trying to change the culture around names, um, you know, because names are so important to people. And like, you know, they talk about the name as the most sweet, sweet sound that somebody hears, your name. And so how can we gain some appreciation for the different cultures that are part of our organizations? And how can we make sure that these people don't feel othered whenever they're in the hospital system? So that's kind of one thing I'm in, I've, I've been really interested in. Uh, I'm doing a lot of talks related to it. And I hope people remember the ALP, Ask, Learn, Practice, and, and do that when next they see a name that um, they might not know how to pronounce. Man, the acronym is good. And you're so right. Like, I think it's a matter of just being intentional. Like, you know, that the one funny um, doctor on Twitter, we probably all know, what's his name? Like, Glockham Flacken or something. Yes. But <laughs> people know how to say his name easy. <laughs> you know, but people don't want to learn everybody else's name. So it's, it's one of those things, like, I love that acronym. And I think just being intentional Mm-hmm. about learning somebody's name because I don't think any of us would like if somebody was like, oh, no, we're not going to call you out what you were born with. We're just going to, you know, short give you a nickname or something. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I love that, man. And again, that piece was very beautiful. Thank you. And I encourage everybody to go read it again. It's Say Our Names. We are doctors too. That's a great article. But my friend, this has been great. And, you know, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. You dropped several gems uh, you're incredibly accomplished, and I know there's much more in store for you, and I'm glad to know you and kind of see you along your journey. My Yo, I appreciate you. If people want to just reach out, you know, um, hit me up on Insta, on Twitter, yeah. Dr. Manny O. On Twitter is Dr. underscore Manny O. Yeah. I'm happy to connect and happy to, you know, share whatever gems I have or collaborate on projects with people. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I Absolutely. appreciate it. Talk to you, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of the Black Doctors Podcast because representation matters. Special thanks to Dr. James Stewart, our host for the episode today. And special thanks to Dr. Ohua Bunwa for joining us and sharing his story. And special thanks to Dr. Nate Jones for his help in producing this show. This week for Sign Out, we really want to give a shout out. Shout out to Dr. Italo Brown. You've heard his voice several times on the podcast Aside from what you hear, he's actually doing an incredible work. Culminated recently in the past week or so, he actually had a visit or invitation to the White House that came about through the prestigious White House Fellowship. This White House Fellowship program, if you don't know it, embeds professionals from different backgrounds for a year of working as a full-time paid fellow in a White House staff office or as a, with a cabinet secretary or some other government official. In the 2021-2022 class, there's quite a few physicians, there's quite a few emergency medicine physicians one of which is uh, Dr. Alistair Martin, also is Dr. Andrew Kim. And together they developed this health equity roundtable that Dr. Brown or Italo was able to take a part in. And he was uh, able to go visit the White House and continue to discuss significant issues such as access to care and other issues that are at the forefront of healthcare, our healthcare system, and the White House. If you didn't know, Dr. Brown is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and a clinical instructor of social emergency medicine. He is a 2006 graduate of Morehouse College, a 2008 graduate of Boston University, where he completed his MPH, and he graduated from a Harry Medical College in 2015. He completed his emergency medicine residency in New York before completing his social emergency medicine fellowship in California. 
throughout his career, he's been at the front lines of social medicine and health equity. He is also the chief impact officer of Trap Medicine. It's a barbershop-based wellness initiative that leverages the cultural capital of barbershops to address the physical and emotional health of black men and boys. He is a former board member of the Tennessee Healthcare Campaign, an organization that spearheads statewide advocacy efforts in support of the Affordable Care Act and Medicare and Medicaid reform. He trained at the Jacoby Medical Center in Montefiore in the Bronx. He is 2017, a National Minority Quality Forum uh, named him as among the 40 under 40 leaders in minority healthcare. He is an avid writer. He's worked with the ABC News Medical Unit and has contributed health equity and wellness commentary to the New York Times, NPR, USA Today, Gentlemen's Quarterly, Men's Fitness, and The Root. He also serves as a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant for organizations like Google and YouTube and was recently, again, selected to become a clinician leader in access to care for the recurring Health Equity Leaders Roundtable, this new initiative by the Office of Public Engagement in the White House. So shout out to you, Dr. Italo Brown, Dr. Alistair Martin. Thank you all for the work that you're doing to improve the healthcare, the health outcomes that we provide to our patients. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast, because representation matters.